Welcome, everybody, to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Gary Schneeberger, the co-host of the podcast and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. And you have clicked play. We hope you've clicked subscribe to this podcast because Beyond the Crucible is a podcast that deals with how you deal with crucible experiences in your life. Those difficult moments in your life that can really shake you up, that can really kind of knock you sideways, can sometimes leave you feeling as if life will never be the same again. And our purpose, and you'll hear it extremely well in today's episode, I think, our purpose in talking about those moments is to give you hope and actionable tips on how you can move beyond them. And uh, our guest today, Warwick, is uh, someone who can really help us with that. And Warwick by the way, listener, is Warwick Fairfax, who's the host of this program and the founder, the architect of Crucible Leadership. Warwick, this is going to be a good one, I think, and it will offer great actionable steps for listeners. Absolutely, Gary. You're very excited to have Mike here, and yeah, it should be a great discussion. The Mike that Warwick just referred to is Mike Valentine, and uh, I'm going to tell you just a little bit about him, listener, before we get going here. Amidst the shadows of life-defining challenges, Mike Valentine activates a rare ability to bring to light the transformative power of purpose and produce real uh, results. With the combination of a strong backbone, kind heart, and direct approach, Mike has been professionally coaching people from all walks of life for more than 25 years. Mike has spent over 30,000 hours in developing leaders and scaled the ladder in three industries. His experience as a seasoned entrepreneur and corporate executive balances his training as a leader and now his unique role as a life purpose coach. Mike has taught corporate leadership development, worked with personal and family relationships, and the realization of peak performance and human potential. The fires of life have tempered Mike's character and left a burning devotion to helping others live happier, healthier lives expressed through transpersonal purposes. For the last 12 years, Mike has pioneered on-purpose guidance systems, which transcend the usual approaches by unlocking uh, the power of true intention to create sustainable change and real uh, results. His integral expertise addressing the psychological, emotional, practical, and spiritual aspects of life and business awakens dormant energy and harnesses real power. With this methodology, Mike supports people in all walks to make the shift to live on purpose now. Well, uh, Mike, it's so great to have you, and I appreciate you coming here on the podcast I really love that whole on purpose now theme. It definitely just uh, certainly uh, feels like it makes so much sense. We talk here a lot in Crucible Leadership and in this case, Beyond the Crucible podcast about living a life significance. Uh, We even actually use the phrase a life on purpose. Uh, Who knew? They were both kind of subconsciously on the same wavelength. But before (laughs) we get to kind of on purpose now, which, uh, you know, I'd love to hear you unpack it some more. It would be great to hear some of the backstory, some of the circumstances, some of the challenges, maybe even crucibles that uh, there's always a reason behind our vision. There's always a reason behind our passion. And I'm sure you have a burning passion for helping people live on purpose. So, Mike, tell us a bit about Mike Valentine and how you grew up and kind of maybe the path that led you to where you are now with On Purpose Now. I uh, was born in Baytown, Texas which mm. is uh, east of Houston. If you know Houston, that's not the brighter side. Yes. And I, my dad is, uh, or was, he passed a little over a year ago, but was a, a union longshoreman, and his best friend was a union iron worker. And by the ripe old age of 14, I was hanging iron in downtown Houston. So much of what I learned about living on purpose, I learned walking a beam, and it's way too simplified but it really is simple. Uh, There's death, three inches either direction or less, and it's important to land the next step. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yes, if you don't land the next step, it could be your last step. (laughs) Yeah, the second one doesn't matter yet. So, so, you know, it really, unbeknownst to me, that was part of my training, learning to live fully in the moment, you know, to be right at the edge of death and, and, you know, in the... uh, 
you know, the late seventies, early eighties, we didn't wear safety harnesses. And so you know, the, the only thing between me and death was gravity and, uh, it was pulling for it. And so I, I did, uh, unbeknownst to myself, that was, that was some of the training to really learn how to stay present in the moment, take the next step, uh, maintain balance, uh, you know, <laughs> be sure you got your tools with you. Uh, you don't want to drop them. There's a lot of good training in that. But prior to that, I, ha I don't know. I was sharing with Gary when we spoke before that when I was seven years old, uh, my parents went to Mexico and they, um, you know, came back and shared of the starving children in Mexico begging for money and food. And uh, a boy that they had, you know, connected with and taken a liking to was my age, uh, seven. And uh, they told me about it. And I remember my heart sinking and my throat welling up. Uh, you didn't often cry in front of my dad for no reason. So I, but it was right there. And when uh, they finished telling me, I don't know if it was exactly then, but shortly after, I decided I needed to get my second bike in shape. That young man could use my bicycle. And if he had my bike to beg, he could get to more people faster. So I went to the garage and started to repair my spare bike. And my dad came out and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm getting my bike in shape for, I believe his name was, was uh, Juan. I'm going to get my bike in shape for Juan and we'll send it to him. And uh, my dad said, oh, don't be silly. You can't do that. And honestly, he may as well have told me I can't help my fellow man. I know he didn't intend that. He was being practical. In hindsight, I can see that. But I developed stomach ulcers, worrying about uh, other children who didn't have, you know, we, we were lower middle class America, but, you know, we had the necessities. We weren't hurting. And I had a spare. And if I couldn't give my spare bike to that young man, how would I help people? And it presented a, a very unique dilemma at seven years old. I developed stomach ulcers and we didn't know that was very young to have stomach ulcers. And one day as I was crossing the backyard, uh, they doubled me over and I didn't go unconscious, but I was in uh, deep pain. And when I, when the pain passed, I had a sense of something that easily now I can say was purpose. Uh, I mm -hmm. certainly couldn't say it then. But I would say now that something in me knew the world lives in fear, and it doesn't have to. So just talk about that experience. You're seven years old, and you probably didn't, you should, certainly wouldn't have thought on those terms. My sense is, even at seven, Mike, your worldview and your father's was very different. I'm sure you didn't say, yes, you know, I have a different worldview than my dad. You know, who does that? No, I wasn't seven? able to say that either. <laughs> But but yet you clearly did. So talk about, again, doesn't mean that your father was a bad person, but your view of the world and how it should operate, maybe even a sense of values was a bit maybe different. So talk about in hindsight, as you look back at a seven-year-old Mike Valentine and your dad, talk about the difference in your dad's frame of reference and how he saw the world and how you saw the world, even at age seven. Yeah, it was, it, and that continued until his passing. You've hit the nail on the head there. Very keen insight on your part. Uh, of course, you're right. I could not say, oh, I have a unique worldview to yours, and let's work this out diplomatically. That wasn't a, an option. But uh, that desire to live in service of something greater than my own existence, I would say from that day until I was 28, haunted me within the setting that I lived in, both uh, in my home and in the, you know, the environment, uh, uh, union iron workers are, are not generally the most enlightened trade on the planet. So, uh, you know, we, uh, I was in an environment that had no, in my opinion, no chance to really not only fertilize and grow and, and expand that in dialogues with people, but couldn't even talk about it. It almost feels like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, that your dad maybe thought, look, my job is to take care of my wife, my kids, my immediate family. That's my job. If you're a, an iron worker, it's take care of you know, your brothers in, the, in your local union. It's like every, other people can take care of themselves, but you know, it's not my job to take care of other families, other people in other countries. That's not what I'm here about. 
you know, kind of family first kind of deal. Was that kind of a bit of the mindset, do you think, of your dad? That's exactly right. And, you know, I would say this, and, and thank you for saying my brothers, because they were. No, no question, I, I hold no superior place on the planet than those guys. I tell you, I think that all of us, unbeknownst to ourselves, we met God on the beam. Mm-hmm. We didn't know that's what we were doing, but fear can't walk the beam. Mm-hmm. and you need something greater than that to take the next step. And so I have gone back. In fact, that my dad passed, like I said, just a little over a year ago. I spoke with his best friend uh, this weekend mm-hmm. and a few times in the last year, and I've been able to have some of these conversations. He's 78, and it's interesting to see his response. He's still uh, bidding work in, in the, for the high-rises in Houston. But that's exactly it. Take care of my tribe and protect it fiercely, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, up to and including with arms if needed. And it's really interesting where you struck a nerve in me that I haven't had the chance to really express, I don't think, very often. If you were to watch my progress from there, you would say, well, he became a typical iron worker. Mm-hmm. He, you know, how much you drink, who you can, you know, beat up in the bar, who you, uh, the women that you hang with became the measure of manlyhood. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Seeing no option, I did. I stepped right in, I would say, in hindsight, unfortunately, but uh, it was all I could see. But I was conflicted and contradicted inside. I could not understand. And so I drank more Jack Daniels to anesthetize it. And then I actually loved being on the beam because there was freedom there. There was total freedom on the beam at the edge of fear. I mean, at the edge of death and, you know, fear dissolving with each step. There's total freedom walking the beam. I almost set my old tool belt is on a statue to my right here. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's here to remind me there's a day's work. You know, as I'm listening to you, Mike, it almost, and I can relate to this in some small way, although we couldn't have grown up more differently. You know, I grew up in a very wealthy background in Australia. I mean, upbringings couldn't be more different. I mean, radically different. But yet I can relate in one sense. It almost feels like you were living somebody else's purpose, somebody else's life, somebody else's worldview, protect your tribe, protect your family, protect your brothers and in the union, kind of, you know, live a hard life, whether it's alcohol, women, that's the environment you were around, I'm guessing. So that was sort of normal for that, your tribe, to use the expression you used. But somehow I sense that it's like, is this all there is? Do I just want to live somebody else's life, somebody else's purpose, you know, there was something within you that said, I felt like said, no, I'm not against this, but I want to be more than this. Does that feel somewhat where you were that you was to some degree living somebody else's purpose or some other group's purpose? I haven't actually looked at it that way, but that's spot on. That's exactly where I was. And, but not knowing how to talk about or shift to or bring forth my own, which like you said, was very different. And, but that's exactly it. So I excelled at football for four or five years. And at 14, I found Jack Daniels whiskey and it uh, became a dear friend for the next 14 years. And, um, at the end of that trail of tragedy, there had been uh, 33 automobile accidents, uh, 12 vehicles total and four trips to jail. And, um, you know, knife fights, gun fights, street fights. And then, you know, as miracle, crucible, or uh, divine intervention would have it, a young lady uh, was born into my marriage. And um, the day I sat, her name is Whitney, and the day, she's 32 now, and the day that I put her on the couch, bringing her home from the hospital, uh, my dad was actually running the video camera, and mm. this, this liquid started to flow from my eyes. And and that didn't happen often. I mean, I'm a pretty tough guy by then. (laughs) Strapping 26-year-old guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I turned away, and and I didn't know. I I didn't understand what was happening. I certainly didn't want my dad to see, and I didn't want it on video. But within the next two days, I knew that I had been struck by love. Mm. I knew that love had come in a package that I couldn't deny, and it had been absent. Because and I could tell it was absent when it became present. And um, as, you know, fate would have it within those two days, 
uh, I ended up putting my mom, my sister and I ended up putting my mom in rehab for uh, cocaine abuse. Mm. And so I had, uh, you know, a fairly good crucible right here. Uh, daughter, two days old, a friend of my mom's had gone into the house I grew up in and committed suicide, uh, struck out with heroin and beat his brains in with a golf club. And my mom walked into that situation and, you know, I came home and my wife and my daughter's mother said, uh, you know, told me what had happened. And my aunt said, you, you have to do something. And I said, I, I, I can't do something. I have a, you know, a two day old child. And by the way, I love her and I'm a little mixed up about all this. And then, you know, by the end of the conversation, I realized she was completely right that there was something that needed to be done. And fortunately, you know, I had, I had had, a, I had some conversations and my mom was uh, uh, either she was going willingly or I was calling for the straitjackets. But I had, uh, I had had those conversations and she went willingly and she's been uh, clean and sober for 33 years now. But that was a major, you know, and, and I would say, you know, what we find in my, my deepest belief, what we find at ground zero is the bottom of our hearts. Mm. And I'm someone who went over and over until I figured that out. And then I'm like, oh, maybe I don't have to go to these extreme bottoms to activate uh, the bottom of my heart or the depth of, of loving care. And I have uh, since then, you know, come to believe that people who will have conversations about it, it's there for all of us. So, you know, it's evolved to we all have a gift to give, a purpose to live, and a vision we would love to build and create of a better self and world. And it generally is some expression of love. So that was obviously a key turning point in your life, that bottom. I mean, if, in hindsight, as you were kind of engaging in, I don't know, behaviors that probably weren't that helpful to you, maybe there was somebody within you, like maybe the seven-year-old boy saying, I don't want to live this life, you know, sort of crying to get out. It's like, you know, there's got to be something different. I mean, and then you just, the birth of your your daughter and then your mother and her challenges, it sounds like that was just a pivotal moment where you said, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to live the same way anymore. I'm not going to continue these behaviors that are destructive to myself and my family. I'm going to change. So what caused you, because some people hit that bottom and you would probably know better than me, just some of the folks, brothers, you know, they don't change. The bottom continues like for the rest of their life, however long that is. But you chose, you made a choice. What led you to make a choice to live your life differently, live your life on purpose, as you would say? I'm, I'm going to uh, uh, respond in a paradoxical, and, and, and by the time I'm finished, it may sound like a political <laughs> answer, not not political party yeah, advice, yeah, yeah. but yeah. but um, you know, a I would say that it was so piercing the experience of love for my daughter, so piercing it was undeniable. It was a burning bush for me mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at that point mm-hmm. in life. It's like you know something lit up the bush and said, Mike, you know, you need to turn some things around. And then the compelling love to mold myself into something that could exist as somewhat of a father. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I'm getting touched to think of it. She's 32 and I have three grandsons now. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. And I'll be 58 on Sunday. So, uh, well, um, happy early birthday. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Uh, but so, you know, it was just so piercing that it was irrevocable in my mind. And I would say that that is an act of grace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't see how I deserved or earned that in any way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting to me to hear you describe the part about getting to the bottom of your heart as an adult, as an adult who'd been through some very difficult, very trying, very painful experiences. Some happened to you, some of them you set into motion, as you acknowledged here. But to That phrase, getting to the bottom of your heart, is interesting to me because of the story you told about being seven years old. Um, uh, You have given an interview. I read an an interview that you gave about that story, and you said something in that story that was really interesting to me. You ended the story by saying, although you couldn't say it then when you weren't able to give your bike to that child who was begging, who was roughly your same age, 
although I couldn't say it then, it was a sense of purpose in my DNA, you told uh, this reporter, in my genes to help others. I was incarnated to help people discover their gift, their purpose, and create their future. To me, when you talk about getting to the bottom of your heart after some very difficult experiences in adulthood, it sounds to me like that may describe where, what you found at the bottom of your heart. Is that fair? That's what it evolved to. I've never heard it said back to me, and thank you for that, in the way you just shared it, Gary. That's beautiful. No, you could say that uh, giving them a bike meant helping them discover their gift, purpose, and vision. We could translate it now. And yeah. uh, it took years, though, to get that clarity. So I was going to uh, back to where Warwick's question right mm -hmm. there. Uh, so I would say it's an act of grace that I don't see any way that I earned. And then paradoxically, I did take practical steps. I uh, got involved in my mom's recovery. I got interested in I had no concept of God. I had never owned a Bible. I didn't. It had all been dark for uh, as long as I could remember, probably since I was seven, maybe. <laughs> my mom told me to. To, uh, we were in the rehab room, and I said, Mom, I don't even have a Bible. And uh, she said, well, here, take this one out of the drawer. And it says, Gideon's, uh, placed here by Gideon's, please do not remove. And I'm like, Mommy, it just can't be right to steal a Bible. <laughs> I mean, it says right here, don't steal it. She said, God, better, you steal, better you steal it than live without it, son. <laughs> uh, so my first was the Gideon's Bible. So. Boy, that, those were very <laughs> profound words from your mother, you know. <laughs> I think she was right in hindsight, you know, but it didn't, something didn't feel quite right. But, uh, and I, I didn't end up going particularly a religious or Christian route, sure. but, I, but I, I tuned in. And then what evolved from there for me, and, and like you said, it, it is a mystery to me how some people go to bottom and they, you know, they have a peak, if you will, a glimpse of the bottom of their heart, but they don't activate what's there. Mm -hmm. And that's become much of my trade is you've been to enough bottoms, let's go back to one of them and see what you didn't pick up, that treasure that lies there. But, uh, but what I did do in a practical way is uh, I loved that daughter so much. And one day her mom and I had an argument and I said, well, you're going to have to explain to this, uh, to our daughter, how you've handled this. And, you know, drove off in an, in an anger. And uh, as I was driving, I heard myself say, you're going to have to explain to our daughter how you handled this and i realized <laughs> i was talking to me and she became the symbol of that love mm -hmm. and the symbol of the desire to find that uh, you know eventually evolve as gary said to the belief that we have a gift to, to give a purpose to live it, and a vision to build it almost feels like your daughter became this talisman or the symbol of your purpose you can't but have helped think when my daughter reaches seven years old, if she wants to give a bike to a kid in Mexico or some other thing, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to encourage her. I'm going to yes. love my dad, but I'm going to take a different path and my daughter will grow up differently. That had to have been in the back of your mind. Well, amazing that you bring that up. So my daughter, I said my daughter has three boys. Over the years, her and I cleaned out closets, drawers, and, and toy boxes around Christmas so that to make room for the new stuff coming. But the, where we took it was into the streets of Houston to the homeless people. Hmm. We went ourselves and delivered it. She handed her things. We picked out the little girl in the front yard. And she is a very tender-hearted uh, young lady, a beautiful young lady. And just before the onset of coronavirus, she took in two foster children. Mm. One three months old and one three years old. And she, and she didn't mention it. It's kind of typical mm. of her to do very kind things but not talk about them at all. And, uh, and you know, she just took pictures. Here, here are foster children. And I'm like, my goodness, that's one, two, three, four, five boys in your home? <laughs> uh, between three months and, and 11 years. And uh, so, you know, I don't know, but I do believe that that tenderness. And I did have the chance. Uh, I mean, not only to maybe say, let's get this bike fixed up and package it uh, at her will, but to also learn how to express that in my life as an example, hopefully that had some positive effect on her. Well, I mean, that is so powerful. I mean, I can, I think the listeners, we can all see the genesis of your vision for helping others, 
you know, see the gifts, the diamonds, maybe in the rough, that maybe even the grace that comes with being in the bottom and that had to have fueled a passion, a mission for you in life to help others uh, live lives on purpose. So talk a bit about, I think we can, I think you can understand the genesis of this, but talk a bit about on purpose now and the tools and the principles that you give people, some of many of whom may well be in, in the bottom or certainly been through transition. Maybe they're not at the bottom, but they're living life aimlessly and they're thinking, is this all there is? You know, I, yeah, I punch a clock, I go to work, but is this all there is? And so talk about how what you do helps people, whether they're in the bottom or just maybe they're just drifting through life, as many of us do. Well, see, it's, the, it's the full range, Warwick, from I have uh, pioneered, organically discovered a method to work people through the events of their past and release the fear and look at the decisions they made about uh, their view of life, their self, their capacities, and the other people involved. And when we're, fear, when we're afraid, we make decisions. I named five things. Uh, those make up the root uh, belief system of the ego in my approach. And so I've, you know, I've reenacted uh, now 38 rapes. And by reenacted, I don't mean we, we reenacted the physicality of it, but through visualization. What happened next? What did you decide? What happened next? What did you decide? So it's the range of people who've been, you know, deeply abused all the way to the executive who wants to achieve the next level. The heartache is the same. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to discount the impact of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse mm-hmm. at all. But from rape to one of, uh, I would say, milder cases, I, I could not understand why this guy seemed so depressed and what was moving with him. And we finally got to the work. And uh, his heartbreak was as a junior in high school, he was cut from the baseball team, the varsity mm-hmm. baseball team. And the way he learned was approaching the field house to see on the list that he's not on the team mm-hmm. and all his baseball buddies were there. And it, that broke his heart. His, the day he believed love failed him mm-hmm. was the day that he started to invest his faith in fear. Or by then he was you know, 17. So, mm-hmm. But so the process is a pathway of endarkenment. So I start with, uh, you know, you have the gift to give purpose, live and vision to build. And most people say, you know, well, I, I have no idea how to discover it. And I said, oh, that, that, that's easy. We'll go through your chapter. The deepest heartbreak, grief, guilt, mm-hmm. and shame that you've experienced in life. That's where you left it. Mm-hmm. So we'll just go back there and find it. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. it's so curious to me, uh, uh, Warwick, that, they know it as well as I do. I've been down that trail with, uh, you know, between two and 3,000 people. Hmm. But when we get there to this place I call ground zero, and, hmm. uh, you know, and you look at this fear-based belief system, diagrammed on a wall, you've had this idea of what, what this is. I know I'm my worst enemy, but I grab it mm-hmm. with a series of beliefs, associated behaviors, and emotional results, the wonderful like resentment and guilt and remorse. <laughs> and when you see the diagram, the ego is an addict. It's mm-hmm. addicted to fear. Mm-hmm. And for me, I would just put as my top behavior those 14 years, you know, believe all these things. I'm not good enough. I deserve to be beaten, raped, abandoned, mm-hmm. thrown to the trash, right? As a series of beliefs. And my top line behavior is just get some more whiskey. So take the whiskey out and now get some more food. Mm-hmm. Take the food right. out and now get right, get some more adrenaline, mm-hmm. and and eventually through you know an iterative process, I saw that this system is going to get a hold of anything, mm-hmm. a wife, a work assignment, uh, inadequacy in creating mm-hmm. technology solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to get a hold of anything, and so there's nothing to do but let it be. Mm. Admit, uh, be growing awareness, admitting that I have a fear-based system that leads me to guilt and shame and, and, and my ego's an addict and accepting it. I do that when I do. Because part of dealing with things is you've got to recognize it and accept that we all have certain behaviors, whether it's inbuilt or learnt, it doesn't really matter, but... Um, you know, I mean, I know I do. We all have certain things, and part of it is 
recognize and accept it and just saying you're not an awful person just because you have certain fears some people are claustrophobic some people are afraid of heights which obviously would be a bad one if you're an iron worker to be afraid of heights but you know <laughs> we all have different fears and you know recognize accept it you know that's the first step to be able to deal with it which obviously i'm sure is what you help people understand right that's step one to expose all of my goal of our, uh, you know, in the deeper work I do of our initial interaction is to diagram on half a piece of paper, uh, 90% of what's holding you back in life. And that's your call or the call of the, mm. you know, the person, uh, mm. uh, going through the process. I, I can't know, but I know what it feels like at ground zero with mm-hmm. them. And it, again, it's fascinating. I've been there more than the people I'm working with, but they often know this is it. This is ground zero. We look at this diagram a bit like you would look at 9-11. Mm-hmm. Wow, those buildings are really crumbled there. And this is really a mess. And it's interesting. It's almost like the darkening of the shadow against the starkness of it. Mm-hmm. The light is so much brighter. So talk a bit about that. I get the part about understanding your fears and some of these challenges. Talk about how the light becomes visible as you recognize the darkness, if you will, as you recognize the fears. How does that work? Well, I think, and we could use today's mm-hmm. environment. Sure. Uh, I think there are, while no discount to the tragedy of lost lives and, and mm-hmm. ill people and, and what they're going through, and yet there are some spiritual gifts embedded within mm-hmm. this putting the whole world in time out and obliterating our future. Mm-hmm. It brings us into the moment mm-hmm. and the light is in the moment, but that's not enough. The, if you will, the circuitry, the organism, a willingness my part is to is willingness, intention and honesty. I'm willing mm-hmm. to see something new there. Mm-hmm. And somehow pain is the great awakener. It almost presses it out and up. So it's not always a visual light, but it's like, for example, you know, what would you have liked to have had there when you were so embarrassed being cut from the the baseball team? Mm -hmm. I would like to have had a sense of connection and friendship, Mm -hmm. maybe love or um, adventure. He saw baseball as quite the adventure. He loved to play. So maybe he would have said connection, uh, friendship and adventure. And I'm like, that's probably what you abandoned right mm-hmm. there so let's recollect it and, and what i was i said earlier that i think that all of our purposes are some form or some branch of love and so he we could just pull that out and say okay now you know create your purpose to live with friendship adventure and, and um connection you know as you're talking i almost feel like if you could go back in time to your seven-year-old self you could have probably mapped your purpose out right there saying, talk about the pain of not being able to give a bike to this kid in Mexico. What about that just fueled your sense of purpose? And I don't know whether you would have said, I just want to help people. Yeah, I want to care for them. I mean, there was a genesis of your probably lifelong vision right there at seven years old. That if you could go back in time, use some of your principles and methodologies. I know at seven, it's hard to figure it all out, but there was a genesis of a vision right there amidst that that particular ground zero, if you will. For sure, and I could patch it back for you. At my very first cut of bringing it to language, this was you know uh, not too long after the you know the post iron working era. So my first way of, of languaging my purpose was very simple: excuse me, to live constructively and help others do that as well. So you mm-hmm. could say exactly that was right mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. At the seven-year-old event, that's I was living constructively. Now I can get to work. I can put this bike back together, mm-hmm. and I can help. So I, I wanted to see him. I literally could see this young man my age getting around faster. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to tell him to stop begging. I was going to tell him to do it better. And there's the other side of the light is the cost of not living on purpose at, at age seven was ulcers was bad ulcers. And so when you don't live on purpose, there can be an emotional, even a physical consequence as there was for you and beyond. And so, but that's everybody's story in a sense, if you're not following your purpose. I think so. I mean, you could fast forward it right into today. You know, I think that uh, we're in a a bit of a global crucible. Mm -hmm. We are definitely in uncertain and redefining times. 
and and you know back to what you were saying there at this place of ground zero so uh, first of all I, I brought my willingness and intention there was in my opinion an opportunity of grace and then my daughter became symbolic of my purpose as you said but then i stayed with it i refused to believe that i couldn't live in that level of connection and love to something greater than myself absolutely and that's oh, oh, over time over not 100 percent. no no but i think that's the one of the other things and i'm sure you talk about it is life's about choices it's easy to say i have no options this is the life I've lived, my dad's lived, my grandfather's lived, this is just what we do, and whatever. You know, and I'm reminded, I went to college in England, and certainly years ago, you know, the whole class system was so strong that if you ever dared to say, maybe I want to go to college, is well, so you think you're better than me? You think you're better than your dad? Well, what's your problem? It's like, you know, the, your tribe would say, don't you dare go outside of the tribe, because that's wrong. You're trying to you know, etc. So, which is incredibly destructive way of thinking. But yet, I think what I'm assuming what you talk, if not preach, is that we have choices how we want to live our lives. We don't have to live what other people say we should. And so that's probably a key part of living on purpose, wouldn't you say, is choose, make that choice to live on purpose, to use your gift to, for the world. I walk people through a series of questions. The first one is, do you want to live on purpose now? Right. And, you know, we might sit at the table with a cup of coffee and, you know, get to know each other. And I would say, hey, that, that's my question for the world. The almost predictable and almost 100% response is, I don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that means. And I don't know how to do it. So I stay with the, converse, the original question. That I didn't ask you if you know what it is, what it means mm -hmm. and how to do it. I asked you, do you want to live on purpose, mm -hmm. giving what you know about the idea of purpose? I don't think anyone's directly said yes. No. Some people have walked away and never came back. I take that as a no, or at least not my style of purpose. I don't think, I don't think anybody said, no, I don't want to live on purpose. I've come to believe that, that the idea of purpose is in the mind of every human, like the question of God. Mm -hmm. it's in there it's something you know i think that you know what am i doing here is in the mind already for all of us i we, think you know we, is we all want to live on purpose i mean one of the things i think i'm sure you talk about too is the whole concept of legacy you know as you're on your deathbed what do you want your life to be i made millions of dollars or i had a nice house or you know maybe i lived a life you know in in your terms on purpose that somehow made the world a better place and cared for others. Which yeah. do you want your legacy to be? 99.9% .9 of sane people, it's obvious what they're going to pick. You know, right. I'm not against money, but it's like, you know, legacy, purpose, they're sort of two sides of the same coin, if you will, or they're related. And you bring up an interesting thought. Uh, I'd love to share, if I may, um, a young man I had been working with for several years, uh, 33, called and said, my mom's got cancer, she's terminal, and they don't have any hope. Stage four here and there and you know, all over her body. Would you meet with her? And I said, you know, uh, well, I, I think so, but I mean, I don't quite know what I would say. Right. Right. I, I'm certainly not someone who cures cancer. Yeah. Uh, if I... If I had that result, I probably wouldn't have taken this call. And uh, <laughs> he said, but I just wanted to find if it's even just a moment of peace hmm. between here and her death. And I just would, if you'd be willing to talk to her, I said, so of course, you know, for you, I'll talk to her. Mm -hmm. So we scheduled it and, and they, they, he had shaved in his head. She had lost her hair. And when they came through the double doors uh, downstairs here, uh, they were both weeping arm in arm. And I got them into the conference room and set them down. And I said, just cry, guys. Mm -hmm. Just let it out. And, uh, you know, the, maybe a long minute. They uh, she had very bright blue eyes. And I learned later she was my age. Mm. But her name was Joyce. And um, when she finished, I said, uh, what do the doctors say? She said, they say I have nine months. I said, what do you think? She said, I don't have nine months. I have six or five. 
I said, is your birthday passed? She said, yes. I said, no more birthdays for you, right? She said, right. I said, so if you have six, you won't see next Valentine's Day, but you will get through Christmas. And uh, she cried a bit and I said, what's your, what are you most afraid of? She said, I don't think my kids are gonna be, I'm afraid my kids won't be all right. And I said, they won't, they're gonna miss you. They might go off on tangents, mm -hmm. rebelling at your loss. Nothing we can do about that. Mm. And she said, um, I am afraid that I'm not right with God. I said, then you're probably not. She said, how do you know? I said, well, people who are probably don't have that question. She said, how do I get right with them? I said, you probably know that answer better than I do. Anyway, I walked her through a process called a butt reduction worksheet. And I said, what do you most want to live between now and your death and to leave behind about this mm -hmm. six months that you think you have ahead? She said, I want to live with grace, dignity, and respect. So I said, okay, your purpose is to live with grace, dignity, and respect. But, and she said, but my kids want me to prepare my eulogy and funeral, but mm -hmm. I don't have the energy all the time. And we went through it all. My kids mm -hmm. may not be okay. I'm going to miss them. I didn't get to live as long as I want to pretty heavy stuff. And, um, at the end I said, are you still afraid that you're not right with God? She said, no, I feel grace, dignity, and respect in this moment. I said, don't forget this moment. Mm -hmm. Brand that this moment into your mind, because if you can do it right now, you can do it again tomorrow. And maybe you'll do it twice tomorrow and three times the next day. And um, we had a long conversation. I said, uh, about this eulogy, <laughs> do you want to write it? She said, no, I don't want to write it. That doesn't seem right to me. I said, you want me to write it? She said, yes. Yeah. So I took out a piece of paper and I said, you tell me what you want your funeral to look like. And we put it together. Her son bawling. Mm. And uh, I asked her what music she wanted. She named three songs. One of them was Amazing Grace by Elvis Presley. And um, wow. uh, so I queued them up on YouTube. Uh -huh. And when I finished writing her eulogy, I read it to her and she said, that's it. I said, your eulogy and your purpose are the same thing. The only way to make this true about you when you die is to live it today. And something happened for me in that conversation. I'm like, I've been teasing around this for years and it got clear, you know, with her having a shortened period of time and facing that reality. Right. So I put the paper over to our son, to her son. And I said, uh, here, we're going to have a funeral today in the conference room. You read the eulogy. I'll play the music. And we had a funeral in the conference, her funeral in the conference room. Wow. And she had these, the wrinkles from her face started to disappear. Huh. But my point is that the, what you're saying, right? The legacy, we could say legacy, you, however you want yeah, to use terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what you want people to say about you when you're gone, you live today. Hmm. And those now, are clues to what your purpose should be as you're writing sure. that eulogy. I mean, that, that is such a brilliant concept, not just, I mean, what you did with that woman is just, that was an act of grace, an act of love. That, I mean, that's an amazing thing that, evolve but that can apply to all of us right you know what I, I was terrified what i would say i'm like a woman who's facing death i don't know what yeah. to say and on the elevator i said well you know I'll just show up and say whatever i'm moved to say and uh, so I, I think no that's one of those things that I, i'm for sure came through me but not from me yeah well certainly as a person of faith like half of life is just showing up and trust if you're a person of faith that there's some higher power that will give you the words when you need it you know, kind of thing. Trust the process yeah. and trust that there's something out there that will help you. So, wow. So, I mean, this is, so when you're talking on purpose, maybe this is a dumb question, but is there a sense that on purpose somehow it needs to benefit others? Like if somebody said, well, my purpose is all about me and getting rich and I don't care if my family lives or starves, who cares? It's all about me. That's my purpose. I mean, is that even possible or is that like some weird... Psychotic thank you thing. for the thank you for the question. There is much confusion about a purpose or a goal. Mm -hmm. Everything you mentioned is a goal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those, those are purposes. 
there's some other place, some other time, some future, and therefore not accessible in this moment. Mm-hmm. A purpose, like she said, to live mm-hmm. with dignity, respect, and grace. You can do that now. And then, and then from there, yes, you establish those goals. But starting in the center of that, per, you know, like to live with grace, dignity, and respect. Now, how will you do that? I need to have some conversations with my children about what I want to be sure they know. About Absolutely. How I love them. And, you know, as you're talking, I'm almost thinking back to legacy. You know, for those who were reasonably sane, you know, just to make that as an assumption, if you asked <laughs> about the whole eulogy thing, there's, I can't think of almost anybody on the planet will say, I don't care about my family. I don't care about my kids. It's all about me. And I mean, you know, they're, they're being self-deceived. They're not being honest with themselves. So to me, how can a purpose not have some sense of altruism, some sense of serving others? So, you know, because it, it almost feels like that's not purpose or not, not a purpose that anybody that I know could have. Does that make sense? I mean, completely. I think it extends its service. So, so I think that the three most common words used in people's purpose are uh, love, grace, and peace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You could see the core negative emotions or um, fear-based emotions as fear, sorrow, and anger. So now we got to mm-hmm. balance, right? And then I think that most everyone's purpose is an extension of love, grace, and peace in some way. And again, I didn't make this up prior to doing work. I learned right. it as I did the work. And I would bet I haven't done it, but if I if I were to go back and look at you know, the written purposes that we've put out for, you know, a few, maybe a few thousand people, I don't think I would find more than 45 words so, that are woven together. I mean, that, that is just profound love, grace, and peace. I mean, that is, it's, I'd be hard-pressed to think of three better words than that. I mean, it's just, that's awesome. But talk about people that you've seen, that you work with, that you're blessed to be around, who are living lives on purpose. What's the difference between the before and after? I mean, what's the, how do you, just their spirit and their, their bearing demeanor, talk about the difference that living a life on purpose makes. Um, for some people, it looks exactly the same, but you can tell something different on the inside. I would say that's at least half or maybe the, the small majority. And other people change everything mm-hmm. because their life was, but it seems like for, for the small majority of people, their life is fairly aligned with what's important already. They just mm-hmm. have been, you can look at it like a spiral, mm-hmm. get an education, add a house, a wife, mm-hmm. some children, mm-hmm. some money, a few toys, spiraling in toward mm-hmm. the center of your heart. And I'm saying let's cut across the grain, go to the center and spiral out. And so it's already somewhat aligned for most people. It doesn't necessarily uh you know, we we have a have a friend in common. She hasn't changed well, she's about to make some pretty drastic mm-hmm. changes but you know she stayed with what was important she didn't knee jerk towards mm-hmm. a whole different life but it mm-hmm. migrates towards you know say to live with uh, with grace peace and love if mm-hmm. you were to reiterate that in your mind uh, bring intention honesty and practice to that daily it would reshape things around you your goals would be different they're set differently but i'll share one uh, young man he had uh, he played uh 17 days of pro baseball, he had hit a grand slam in the last uh, high school baseball game and the first college one, so two in a row. Uh, mm-hmm. Pretty accomplished guy. He was running a real estate company, a mortgage bank, and uh, he met with me and said, I'm thinking about uh, designing a coaching company, and I hear you've got a lot of content. And I said, what's the matter with your neck? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said, well, <laughs> i got a crick in my neck, my back hurts, and you know, your eyes are bloodshot. You look kind of red. How many hours are you working? He said, 16 a day. I said, how many days? He said, seven or so. I said, we're not building any company. No, that's not happening. And I said, you know, you have a gift to give a purpose, live in a vision to build a better self in the world. And we got to work right away. He's a go-getter guy uh, with, you know, all the tools to be, you know, an extraordinary person and already extraordinary at that point. But his life, uh, he shed two companies and focused on the one that was the broadest expression of his purpose, which was, you know, residential real estate and growing a brokerage, even though the other company made more money. And then he took Fridays off at noon 
And then he took uh, Fridays and Tuesdays off, and now he coaches his 11-year-old son's baseball game, and he got his neck straightened out. You know, I love how you're describing this because sometimes people think this sort of road to Emmaus moment, you know, the scales come off, you know, Paul lives a radically different life or, you know, some spiritual epiphany. But it's it's not always like that. You know, sometimes it's, um, I, I love that phrase you mentioned of sort of the inward spiral and the outward spiral. Maybe, you know, as we often say on Crucible Leadership and Beyond the Crucible, there's nothing wrong with success, but in service of what? And so, you know, is it in balance? Are you working 16 hours a day? I mean, are you able to take vacation with kids or do something meaningful? But just as you were talking about that person, that friend you were working with, just the outward life may not look that different, but yet there was more of an outward focus and an inward focus. It made him, it led him to make subtly different choices about what businesses to focus on. You know, to you, his life may be profoundly different to the others. It may be just a slight shift, but it doesn't mean, you know, selling your business or, you know, going, being a missionary, some uh, foreign country. It can be just a change in perspective of what you're already doing is what you're saying, which is, which is to me, is an interesting thought. It, it certainly, you know, what he got clear about his purpose and that and then his goals look differently. You know, I would say that, you know, underneath is a treadmill for most people, the fear-based belief that I'm not good enough, I'm unwanted, and or I'm unlovable. And so when I finally get that money, prestige, status, political office, home, relationship, finally, I'll be happy and live with purpose. And I'm saying it'll never work. You know, it, it almost feels like a good summary in a sense is, do you want to live a life on fear? or on purpose, right? And most people choose on fear. I'm afraid of what my dad might think, or what my friends or my tribe, so to speak, to use a term we used earlier. You know, I'm living life based on fear or obligation rather than on purpose. That feels like the dichotomy. Spot on, uh, fear or purpose. Fear or purpose. And, and, uh, you know, my, I say... um, I say that my craft is a life purpose guide or my, that's my role, but really my skill is fear hunting. <laughs> that's a, what a great phrase. Fear hunting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's my skill is to, to, you know, go down the darkest tunnels and illuminate the fear and the illumination of the fear. The purpose is so obvious. It's uh, we don't have to go chase the purpose. We just have to admit the fear. And at that point, that choice becomes obvious, exactly the way you said it, fear or purpose. I would actually go see that movie, The Fear Hunter. I would, I, I would absolutely, whether Robert De Niro was in it or not, I would go see uh, that film. Uh, gentlemen, we're at the point where we've got to begin to uh, uh, land the plane. It's been a robust uh, discussion about purpose and significance and overcoming crucibles. And I would be remiss, Mike, if I did not give you the chance to let our listeners know how they can reach you, how they can learn more about On Purpose Now and how they might be able to engage with you. Yeah, my website is onpurposenow.com. So you can go there. Uh, You can send me an email at mike at onpurposenow.com. And uh, either way, I'll reach out or see how we can connect. uh, My commitment to, I'll get touched uh, um, on my 55th birthday, I decided that the sports I like do not watch time elapsed. They watch time remaining in the game. Mm. And I took an app and decided I'll, I'll, if I get a good, long, healthy run of it, I'd like to go 88 years. And on Sunday night at midnight, I'll have 30 to go. Uh, right now, I have 30 years in two days and about eight hours. But who's counting? <laughs> well, it's not, mor- it's not morbid to me. It helps me, you know. Absolutely. Make t- today counts. I'm clicking them off. But my point is, I uh, those who would choose a pathway of, I think there are many paths one way. The way is love. I'm talking about a pathway, and purpose is a path, as is m- many of the spiritual teachings. Right, many paths, but the way is love. Those who want access to the path of purpose, I- I'll be here. So 
shoot me an email, you know, learn what you'd like on the website. Uh, I am hopefully next week going to launch some uh, no-cost workshops, Zoom workshops, and uh, they're fear hunting workshops. Uh, <laughs> uh, face the fear, feel the freedom. And, you know, we're going to, I'm going to do a few of those. And, and I want to, as COVID-19 took over, I realized that demand and value of what I do has gone up, but the price people will pay is probably going down. And I asked myself a question that I'm going to stay with until we get the all clear sign, which I think may be some time from now. And, uh, and my question was, uh, how can I help people do for a tenth of the cost? better than 70% of the impact. And so I'm, I'm challenging myself with that in this crucible time. Can I, can I, this, all this power that I talk about, can I activate it without being at the bottom? That is a, um, an inspiring thing that you're doing. And, uh, and obviously will be a helpful and healing thing that you're doing uh, for many of our listeners and certainly for the people who have engaged with you. Speaking of our listeners, um, I have been, um, uh, this conversation has truly been fascinating uh, between you and Warwick, Mike, and um, I, I've, I've sort of taken three notes, uh, three takeaways that I uh, want our listeners to have as they, you know, as we close up. Um, three key takeaways, I think, from this discussion. And the first one was at the very beginning, and I love the way that you expressed this, uh, Mike, the idea of putting one foot in front of the other. Okay. And doing it one step at a time. This is a skill, listeners, that Mike learned walking steel beams and not steel beams on the ground. He was walking them well above the ground. And it could have, because he was not harnessed to the beams, it could have dire consequences had he fallen. But when you're up there and you're walking those steel beams, when you're putting one foot in front of the other one step at a time, the second step doesn't matter. That's the first step to walking out of vision to finding your purpose. Your path to moving beyond your crucible and living a life of significance begins with a single simple step. And as Mike says, fear cannot walk the beam. So walk bravely and boldly. So there's takeaway one, I think. Takeaway two, uh, Mike told a, a moving story about looking for the treasure that lies in the bottom that you've hit, the crucible experiences that you've been through. As tough as it's been, what good came out of what happened to you or what good could come out of it? Finding beauty in the ashes of your life is one of the most certain ways to keep yourself out of another fire. And then I think the third point that we had a great discussion of here is the idea of building a vision. Warwick talks about living a life of significance. Mike talks about living on purpose. They use some of the same language. But here's a hint as you're looking to live a life of significance, build a purpose, craft a vision. It's almost always, as Mike said, rooted in love, loving yourself and loving others. That will fuel your purpose, listener, and it will likely revolve around these three things that, that Mike said fuel the purposes of the clients he works with, which touched Warwick when he said it. The three things that your vision, your purpose, almost always will, will revolve around when you get right down to it is living in love, grace, and peace. And as we sign off on this episode of Beyond the Crucible, we hope that those are things that you do indeed find the wherewithal to walk in as you pursue your life of significance. Thank you for spending time with us on Beyond the Crucible Work, and I have um, just a little favor to ask on the app that you're listening to this podcast on now, click or tap subscribe. What that will do is make sure that you don't miss fascinating conversations like the one we just had with Mike Valentine, and it'll also help us tell more people about those conversations so that they can begin to chart their own course for moving beyond their crucibles. And until the next time that we're together, Please remember that crucible experiences are painful and they happen. We have research that shows they happen to um, almost half of people are willing to admit they've had crucible experiences and they are painful, but they do not have to be. And in fact, in most cases are not the end of your story. They can be if you learn the lessons of them, if you find the purpose in them, if you cast a vision from them. 
those crucible experiences can be the start of a new story, a new chapter in the book of your life. And the most rewarding one of all, because it's a chapter that leads to a life of significance.